All right, tonight we begin with Matthew chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 1. And I, I think that the best way, that there's a lot of introductory things you can say about any book of the Bible. And in particular, it's true of the Gospels, because each one of the Gospels have their own unique background, their own unique perspective. But I like to just jump right into the text and sort of take background things as they come up. And they're going to come up very quickly here in the text. As we see verse 1, Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is how Matthew begins his account of the life of Jesus Christ. And what's very interesting is that from the statement in the ancient Greek text, it's difficult to tell exactly what he means by that phrase, the book of the genealogy and what it refers to. You see, it could be translated this way, the record of the genealogy, it could be translated the record of the origins of Jesus Christ, or it could be translated the record of the history of Jesus Christ. The ancient Greek wording will allow any one of those translations. But what I find fascinating about the Gospel of Matthew is that any one of those three meanings is correct. If it's correct to say this is the record of the genealogy, what follows in the next several verses? Well, it's the genealogy of Jesus as it came through uh, his adoptive father, Joseph. Secondly, if he means the history or the record of the origins of Jesus, that's what continues after the genealogy when he explains the virgin birth, when he explains the dream given to Joseph, when he explains how Jesus came into the world, the origins of Jesus. But it may very well be, and if I had to pick any one of the three, I would lean towards this third option that what Matthew actually means is this is his introduction to the record of the history of Jesus Christ. He is formally giving us his understanding, his account of the history of Jesus, his gospel account. Now, Matthew was uniquely qualified to do this. We know from the Bible not a whole lot about Matthew, but we do know this. His profession was a tax collector, and he was also known by the name Levi, in the New Testament. Now, Matthew was very well qualified to write an account of the life of Jesus and his teachings because a tax collector in that day would be Jewish, but yet he would be a collaborator with the Roman government and he would essentially be a civil servant, a government employee of the Roman occupying government. Now, this would mean a few things. First of all, it would mean, of course, he would be hated and despised by his countrymen, he was an outcast. It would also mean that if he was good at his job, he was wealthy. It would mean, thirdly, that he knew ancient Greek. He knew the Greek language, and he knew how to keep records. He knew how to make notes. And there are some people who really believe that Matthew was sort of the recorder among the disciples, the secretary, if you will, who took uh, limited notes of Jesus' teachings and such. I like what William Barclay, the commentator, says about this. He says that when Matthew followed Jesus, he left everything behind except for his pen and paper. And he nobly used his literary skill to become the first man ever to compile an account of the teaching of Jesus. Now, how does he begin in this description? Notice here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he says, the son of David and of Abraham. Now, what follows in verses 2 all the way through 17 will be a very detailed genealogy, although not exhaustive, of Jesus from Abraham all the way down to the time of Joseph, Joseph, the father of Jesus. 
the adoptive father, I should say. But in this overview he gives us here in verse 1, it's sort of a highlight. Of all these names that are going to be mentioned in the following verses, what are the two most important names? It tells you right there in verse 1. Son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David, why? Because that means that Jesus was qualified to be the king of the Jews. He was qualified to have the royal throne of Israel and Judah as it was passed down from the Davidic line and was established with the covenant that God made with David. But also the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham being, of course, his vital Jewish identification, but not merely a Jewish identification, but putting him in the line of that promise. If you remember the great covenant that God made with Abraham, he said he'd promise him a land, I'll give you a land, I'll make a great people out of you, and then he promised Abraham a blessing. He said, through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, and they are and would be blessed in Jesus Christ. And so Matthew here is very deliberately trying to make these connections with us. Now, when we consider the Gospel of Matthew, you should know that most New Testament scholars believe that Matthew was not the first of the four written. I think there's some reason to dispute that, but I just want you to know what the majority opinion is, and it's a very strong majority opinion. The very strong majority opinion says that Mark was the first gospel written. And the basic reason for that is that you find elements of the gospel of Mark in Matthew and Luke but you don't find certain elements of Matthew in Luke in Mark. And what we're talking about are the three synoptic Gospels. Do you know what that word means? It's a fancy word. It simply means to see the same. When we talk about the Gospels, we often talk about the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John. John is off in his own category altogether. (laughs) Matthew, Mark, and Luke roughly give us the same chronology, the same approach, the same perspective um, in in the life of Jesus. Imagine it this way. John gives us a completely different perspective. So imagine this. It's as if a a automobile collision comes. Two vehicles collide in an intersection. And you have people standing on three different corners of the intersection, right? Matthew's on one, Luke is on another, and Mark is on the third. And they watch it, and if you were to ask each one of them the description of it, they would give you a different explanation, right? Because each one saw it in a slightly different way. They each saw the same event, and their, and their explanations don't contradict each other, but yet they saw it with different eyes from different perspectives. Now, if you were to put John in the equation, John is up above looking down upon it from an airplane, right? <laughs> he, he's seeing the same events for sure, but he has a totally different perspective altogether. Now, again, back to the idea. If most New Testament scholars today believe that the Gospel of Mark was the first one written, why then is Matthew the first in the New Testament? And by the way, this isn't a recent development. If you go back to the very earliest lists of the books of the New Testament and the earliest lists of the Gospels, Matthew is always in front. If you go back to the idea of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four Gospels, in any edition of the New Testament that appears, Matthew is always first. Now, why is that the fact? Well, in the early days of Christianity, many people thought that Matthew was the first of the four Gospels written. And the early Christians rightly saw the Gospel of Matthew as being important because it has some very significant portions of Jesus' teaching that are not included in the other Gospels. 
such as a fuller version of the Sermon on the Mount. The Gospel of Matthew has more of the teaching of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. Now, by the way, also, it's the only one of the three synoptic Gospels to have an apostolic author. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark was not one of the apostles. He was an associate of the apostles. Luke was not one of the apostles. He was an associate of Paul. And so of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew is the only one to have an apostolic author. author. And we also find that the Gospel of Matthew was quoted in early Christian writings far more than any of the other Gospels. But probably most importantly for the reason why when you open up the pages of the New Testament, Matthew is first, is because the Jewish flavor of the Gospel of Matthew makes for a very logical transition between the Old and the New Testaments. And for this reason, the early church placed it first in order among the four Gospel accounts. Now, by the way, we should know this about the Gospel of Matthew as we come to study it. The Jewish character of the Gospel of Matthew is evident in very many ways. And there are many indications that Matthew expected that his readers would be familiar with Jewish culture. For example, I won't ask you to turn there. I'll just tell you about it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Matthew uses a Hebrew term or Aramaic term, korban, but he doesn't explain it. He just throws out the word. And then later on, oh, pardon me, in Matthew 5.22, it's the Aramaic term raka. In Matthew 7.11, it's the term korban. But both of these are Aramaic or, or Hebrew words that he just throws out without explanation. In uh, Matthew also commonly refers to Jewish customs without explaining them. For example, he'll talk about hand-washing customs among the Jews. When Mark or Luke refer to such customs, they often give an explanation. that Well, this is why the Jews did this as a purification. Mar Matthew saw no need to do that. It's interesting that Matthew starts his genealogy with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, whereas Luke begins his genealogy with Adam, because Jesus, in Luke's presentation, is a man in general. Matthew presents the name of Jesus and its meaning in a way that presupposes that the reader knows its Hebrew roots. And then Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, refers to Jesus as the son of David, and instead of using the phrase kingdom of God, Matthew uses the more Jewish phrase kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. And so for all these reasons, we can detect that the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily with Jewish readers in mind. Yet significantly, the Gospel of Matthew also triumphantly ends with Jesus commanding his followers to make disciples of all the nations, right? Do you remember that? Which gospel is it where we find the Great Commission? Go ye into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Which gospel? It's the gospel of Matthew. So we should not think that the uh, gospel of Matthew was written only for Jewish people, not at all. The gospel of Matthew is deeply rooted in Judaism, but at the same time it's able to look beyond it. It sees the gospel itself as being more than just a message for the Jewish people. It's a message for the whole world. And by the way, if we're talking about this, we should also include that Matthew is also deeply critical of the Jewish leadership and their rejection of Jesus. To say that the gospel of Matthew is pro-Jewish is incorrect. It's better to say that it's pro-Jesus. 
and it presents Jesus as the authentic Jewish Messiah, who many of the Jewish people, especially the religious establishment, rejected. So, some early church commentators and some modern scholars will tell you that Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek. I'm no expert. From the evidence I've read, I don't believe that to be the case. Nobody has discovered an ancient Hebrew manuscript of Matthew. That would be the kind of discovery that, to me, that would prove such a thing. And so there's no concrete evidence for it. I think it's a very tenuous point. Anyway, back to verse 1. How does he describe Jesus here? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, throughout the gospel, this gospel, Matthew presents Jesus as the kingly Messiah promised from David's royal line. If you go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, right? What, what did David want to do one day? He looked outside and he saw his beautiful palace and he said, man, I live in a great palace and God lives in a tent. So that's not right. God, I'm going to build you a house. And David, with all his heart, with all his heart, he dedicated himself to building God a house. And he called the architects and he started the blueprints. And he was going to do the whole project. And then suddenly Nathan the prophet came to him and he said, David, this is what God says to you. Don't build me a house. I don't want you to build me a house. Instead, what God said to David is, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make from you a dynasty that will never end. And it is from your royal line that the Messiah will come. That was essentially the Davidic covenant between God and David. Therefore, it was absolutely essential that the Messiah be able to present his credentials that he was from not only the line of David, but from the royal line of David. And that's exactly what Matthew demonstrates in this genealogy. You see, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be the son of David. In the very first sentence of his gospel, Matthew points to Jesus as being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But not only was he the son of David, was it also, say, the son of Abraham. He connects him even further back to Abraham, and Jesus is the seed of Abraham in whom the whole world would be blessed. That's in Genesis 12, 3. So, beginning here at verse 2 all the way through verse 16, we have this great list of the genealogy. And when we come to something like this, I always go back and forth whether I should read the whole thing or not. Um, because it's always sort of entertaining for people to hear me struggle with these difficult words, <laughs> difficult names. And just for the sake of doing it, why don't we? Why don't we go through and read it through? I'll begin here, and uh, we'll see if we can't get through it. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot... Boy, messing up already. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. And Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abahiah, and Abahiah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. 
Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shetael, and Shetael begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, this genealogy establishes Jesus' claim to the throne of David through his adoptive father, Joseph. This is not the blood lineage of Jesus through Mary. This is the legal lineage of Jesus through Joseph. The Gospel of Luke, I believe, provides Jesus' blood lineage through Mary. Now, as I said before, this idea of the genealogy was very important to the ancient Jews. And you could say that in one sense, Jesus' qualification to be the Messiah hung on whether or not he could be, have it established that he was, in fact, a son of David. And as you carefully go through this genealogy and compare it with Luke's genealogy and compare it with Old Testament genealogies, for the most part, it makes sense, but I'm not going to hide it from you. There are some places where you just scratch your head and say, I don't see how this matches up. There are a few significant problems in sorting out the details of this genealogy, comparing it either to Luke's or to that which we find in the Old Testament. Now, I myself am persuaded that Matthew records the genealogical record of Joseph and Luke records the genealogical record of Mary. But you should know that, that my understanding of this, which I say I don't alone have this, there are many other Bible teachers and such that have it, but my understanding of this is not shared by everybody. There are other people who take a, take a look at the, at the text in the Gospel of Luke, and they say, no, that refers to something else. But on the balance of the evidence that I've seen, I believe Luke is describing the genealogy of Mary by blood for Jesus. Matthew is describing his legal genealogy, again, his claim to the throne. Now, these genealogical differences should not prevent us from seeing the whole. Matthew Poole acknowledged that there were some problems in the genealogies. And I'm quoting to you Matthew Poole, this great old Puritan um, commentator. And yet he rightly observed a few important points. Number one, the Jews, in fact, kept very extensive genealogical records. And so it's not unwise to trust these accounts. Secondly, we should remember Paul's warnings about striving over genealogies and not get into arguments about them. Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, and then again in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, that we should be careful that we don't get drawn into arguments about genealogies. But third, and perhaps most importantly, if the Jewish opponents of Jesus could have demonstrated that he was not descended from David, they would have automatically disqualified his claim to be Messiah. Yet they made no such argument against the Messiahship of Jesus, right? They did not make it, and they could not make it. And so the problems that we have with some of the genealogies and matching some of the names, I don't regard them as big deals. I regard it simply as just the kind of thing that comes up in history where you have different accounts and reconciling them sometimes is complicated. What I want you to notice more so in that big, long list of names that I read to you from verse 3 all the way through verse 16, or verse 2 through verse 16, 
I want you to notice something. Overwhelmingly, there are very few names in there that you recognized, correct? Most of those people were like, who? Who's that guy? Who's that? Who's that? What I want you to notice, most of the people in Jesus' genealogy were insignificant people of little note, at least in the pages of history. I want you to realize that for the most part, now there are some wonderful exceptions that we'll talk about in just a moment. For the most part, Jesus was very content to come from regular people, from nobodies, from people who were not great or exalted in the eyes of this world. But perhaps the most notable thing in this genealogy is the mention it makes of four different women. This is absolutely groundbreaking because it was against all custom to list the name of a woman in a genealogy. And yet Matthew does it very deliberately. He mentions Tamar, he mentions Rahab, he mentions Ruth, and then he mentions her who had been the wife of Uriah, who is, of course, Bathsheba. Now again, this unusual premise, excuse me, presence of four women makes us stop and say there's something very interesting here. Because women were rarely mentioned in ancient genealogies, and the four that are mentioned here are worthy of special mention as being uh, emissaries of God's grace. They show how God can take unlikely people and use them in great ways. I mean, when you think of the four people that he mentioned, it's remarkable. Tamar. Who was she? Well, she just sold herself as a prostitute to her father-in-law. Her father-in-law was Judah, and that brought forth Perez and Zerah. That's not a very notable accomplishment. That was Tamar's accomplishment. Then you had Rahab. Well, Rahab was also a Gentile prostitute whom God took extraordinary measures to save her from the judgment that was coming upon the city of Jericho and to save her from her lifestyle of prostitution. The third woman mentioned is Ruth. Now, we don't have any sordid history of Ruth, but Ruth was just a simple country girl, and she was from Moab. She was a Gentile, and until her conversion, she was out of the covenant of Israel. And then we have her who had been the wife of Uriah, who of course is Bathsheba, mentioned by implication in verse 6. Well, she was an adulteress. She was infamous for her sin with King David. And now Matthew mentions these four. Now, the place that these four women have in the genealogy of Jesus demonstrates that Jesus was not... um, exalted with a great uh, royal background according to human perception in the sense that he did not come from a pure aristocratic background. Now, he did if he came from a royal line. There's no doubt about that. He belongs to the royal line of Judah, and Matthew just demonstrated it. But make no mistake about it. He's not what we would call a blue blood. He's not a fancy aristocrat with this wonderfully pure background. And the four women who have this important place in this genealogy also demonstrate that Jesus identifies with sinner. He identifies with sinners in his birth, in his baptism, in his life, in his death on the cross. Friends, he even identified with sinners in his genealogy. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, Jesus is heir of a line in which flows the blood of the harlot Rahab, and of the simple country girl Ruth. He's close to the fallen and to the lowly, 
and he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure. But I think there's a third reason why these four women have an important place in the genealogy of Jesus. It shows us something, that there is a new place for women under the new covenant. You see, in both the pagan and in the Jewish culture of that day, men often had very little regard for women. In that era, there were some Jewish men, I don't want to say that all Jewish men prayed this, but there were certainly some Jewish men, because it's a recorded prayer. There were some Jewish men who prayed every morning thanking God that they were not Gentiles, slaves, or women. That's how they began their day. Now, despite that, you should know that women were more highly regarded among the Jewish people than they were among the pagans. But under the new covenant, Jesus elevates all of that because women are exalted into a place higher than what they enjoyed, certainly under paganism and even under uh, Judaism of his day. And so this is an amazing thing about this genealogy. Now, in the last couple lines of this genealogy, we read in verse 16, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Matthew wanted to make it clear that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Rather, he was the husband of Mary. Very clear that Matthew wants to make this plain to us. Again, that Joseph is not the blood father of Jesus. Rather, he is his adoptive father. There's one thing more um, to talk about before we go to verse 17. And that's something very interesting, that the royal line that gives Jesus the right to sit on the throne of the kings of Judah and Israel, that royal line is not his blood line. It's a very interesting thing that happened. Because what you find in the pages of the Old Testament is that there was a particular king in Old Testament times who was so wicked that God brought upon him a curse not only upon him, but of all of his blood descendants. Therefore, there was sort of a trap that I would say Satan laid for the plan of God. The Messiah had to come from the royal line of David, but if he was a blood descendant of the royal line of David, there would be perhaps this lingering curse upon him. God found a way around it. We call it the virgin birth to where the legal claim that Jesus brings to the throne of Israel comes to him through his adoptive father, not his blood father. And there is no such curse that came upon the line of Mary. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, with this, Matthew makes it clear to us, and again, this is admittedly one of the reasons why there is problems in reconciling the genealogy here with the one in Luke and with the ones found in the Old Testament. Matthew admits for us that this is not a complete genealogy. There were not actually 14 generations between the landmarks that he mentions, right? There were not 14 generations from the time of Abraham to David, and then from the time of David to the captivity, and then the time of captivity to um, Joseph. But nevertheless, Matthew 
edited the list to make it easy to remember and to memorize. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 1, verse 8 says, Jehoram, Joram, excuse me, Joram begot Uzziah. Do you see it there? Now, this was Uzziah, the king of Judah, that same Uzziah, king of Judah, who was struck with leprosy for daring to enter the temple as a priest would enter the temple and offer incense. Well, Uzziah was not the immediate son of Jehoram. There were three kings between them, Azariah, Joash, and Amaziah. Yet, Matthew, again, it's no surprise, he tells us he's doing it. He says, I've organized this list of genealogies into groups of 14, editing it somewhat, so that um, it would be easy to remember and easy to memorize. This practice of skipping generations at times was common in the listing of ancient genealogies, and Matthew did nothing unusual by leaving some generations out. All right, now, on to verse 18 in the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew doesn't really tell us about the birth of Jesus Christ. I kind of can't wait to get to heaven and question Matthew about this. Matthew, you told us you were going to tell us about the birth of Jesus Christ, and actually Luke does a much better job of telling us all about Bethlehem and the manger and no room in the inn and the shepherd boys and all of that. By comparison, Matthew's account is very bare. Instead, Matthew tells us where Jesus came from, and he tells the story through the eyes of Joseph. You see, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, verse 18 tells us. Now, there were essentially three steps to marriage in the Jewish world of Jesus' time. I want to tell you, these three steps are not commanded by the Scriptures. We're just talking about traditions in the Jewish world in the first century. Three steps. First of all, engagement. This could happen when the bride and groom were actually small children. Right? Parents do it all the time, right? We used to do it with our children. You know, the five-year-old boy is playing with the five-year-old girl. You know, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if they grew up and got married together? Ha, 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 and everybody laughs about it. When the ancient world, they weren't laughing about it. The ancient world, it was like, well, this does sound like a good deal. Our two families are compatible. It'd be a good match between the families. Let's do it. Let's shake on it. And the two fathers would shake on it and say it would be a deal. Our child, children, your son, my daughter, they're engaged. It could happen when the children were quite were young. Then... As they grew older and closer to marriable age, there would be what is known as the betrothal. The betrothal made the previous engagement official and binding, right? As you might imagine, many of the engagements made in the ancient world were broken, right? Uh, I wanted to give my daughter to your son because you were really wealthy and well off. But in the 10 years since the time that we made the agreement, you've fallen on hard times. And I think I can find somebody else better for my daughter. You know, that kind of thing. It wasn't uncommon for an engagement to be broken. But when the engagement was ratified, when it was official, then it was called betrothal. During the time of betrothal, the couple were known as husband and wife, even though they didn't live together, even though they didn't have sexual intercourse together, Nevertheless, a betrothal could only be broken by divorce. Typically, betrothal lasted a year. Then there was marriage. 
And this took place after the wedding or at the wedding, after the year of betrothal. So where are Mary and Joseph? Well, they're in the betrothal stage. Again, look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Matthew plainly tells us, again, without the greater detail that we find in the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us about Gabriel's angelic visitation to Mary and Mary's wonderful song, the Magnificent, and all these other things. Matthew's giving us a very bare account. Matthew presents to us the virginal conception and subsequent birth of Jesus. Sometimes we use an inexact phrase. Sometimes we talk about the virgin birth. Technically, we're not talking about the virgin birth. We're talking about the virgin conception. Now, the virgin birth or conception was obviously something difficult for people to believe back then, even as it was, or even as it is doubted today by some people. Can you imagine what that would have been like? What it would have been like for Mary? She has this fantastic uh, experience with the angel. The Spirit of God overshadows her, and yet it turns up in some weeks, some months later, it, it's evident that she's pregnant. How would she explain this to her family? How would she explain this to anybody? Now, you, you and I might come back and say, well, of course, it was the Holy Spirit. It was a virgin birth, all of this. But you could see where very much in the ancient world they would have a hard time believing that, wouldn't they? We should consider what a tremendous trial this was for a godly young woman like Mary and for Joseph, who was her betrothed. Her situation was about the most distressing and humiliating that can be thought of. I like what Adam Clark says. He says, Nothing but the fullest consciousness of her own integrity and the strongest confidence in God could have supported her in such trying circumstances where her reputation, her honor, and her life were at stake. And wouldn't you say that's true? I mean, her life was at stake at this. Because as it was found out that she was pregnant, uh, people would instantly wonder, well, Joseph, are you the father? Is this adultery? What's going on here? Now, the truth of the supernatural conception of Jesus was disbelieved by many people in his own day. And later on, it was twisted into lies about the parentage of Jesus. References are made to these suspicions in some passages. Why don't we turn to them right now? Turn for a moment, if you will, to John chapter 8, verse 19. You'll see one of these instances where the enemies of Jesus make a slander against him regarding his parentage. Uh, again, we're talking about uh, John chapter 8, verse 19, where we read, Then they said to him, Where is your father? Well, I don't think that's an innocent question. I don't think they're looking for more information about Jesus' father in heaven. I think they're saying, Jesus, it's well known that you have a very suspicious background here. Just tell us, where is your father? If you want a confirmation of this, look now at verse 41 of the same chapter. <laughs> Jesus said to them, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, can you imagine how they said that to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, we weren't born of fornication, but everybody knows that you were. And so this was a stigma that hung over Jesus to some extent, but also to Mary to a great extent. You know, there was probably nobody on this earth that more identified with the victory and the vindication of Jesus Christ more than Mary did, 
right? Because Jesus' vindication was her vindication as well. And so this was a very complicated matter. Lies spread about that Mary had become pregnant from a Roman soldier. But here, Matthew set the story straight, both back then and now. Now, verse 19, what was uh, Joseph's response? We're back here in Matthew chapter 1. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now again, the previous verse told us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Yet this verse calls Joseph her husband. Because remember I told you, under betrothal, they were referred to as husband and wife, even though they weren't married yet. Joseph was still considered Mary's husband by betrothal. (coughs) Verse 19. Being a just man and not wanting to make a public example of her. A just man. In other words, being a just man, Joseph knew that if Mary had been unfaithful to him, it would be impossible to go through with the marriage. Yet his nature as being a just, and might I say a kind man, also did not want to make this an unnecessary hardship for Mary. So Joseph made the understandable decision, how can I do what's right without being too hard on Mary? I know, I'll just put her away quietly. We will seek a quiet divorce. And that's why it says at the end of verse 19, was minded to put her away secretly. This refers to breaking a betrothal by divorce. In the culture of that time, a betrothal, again, was binding and needed a divorce to break. Now, again, everybody would know that Joseph did this. And so Joseph intended to do it as quietly as possible. He knew there was no way that Mary could escape the shame of this particular situation, but he wanted to spare her as much of it as possible. Then what happens? out of the blue, to use an expression of speech. Verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now again, This was not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord. Some people think it was Gabriel, because Gabriel is the one who made many of these announcements to Mary and to Elizabeth or Zacharias, I should say. But we have no way of knowing that, of course. But it was a prominent angel who made this announcement to Joseph in a dream. It was presented to Joseph, again, not in an actual angelic visitation, but in a dream. Interestingly, the dream came while he thought about these things. Joseph was understandably troubled by Mary's mysterious pregnancy, her future, and what he should do towards her. And though he had decided to put her away secretly, you can tell he wasn't comfortable with that decision. Oh, what should I do? I'm not sure about this. And so it came to him in a dream. Now, by the way, let me just mention this. It's a very interesting phenomenon that many people observe today, that God seems to be speaking to people and preaching or presenting the gospel or presenting Jesus to them in dreams. This, supposedly, of course, I don't have any first-hand knowledge of this, but I read accounts and hear of accounts. This supposedly is happening with some frequency in the Muslim world, where people in the Muslim world are dreaming about Jesus, 
Or if it's not about Jesus specifically, it's some dream that prepares them to hear about Jesus. Now, what are we to make of such things? Well, I think this example that we have here in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 shows us that God really can speak to somebody in a valid, powerful way through a dream. It's not to be despised. What I would hate to see happen is Christians come to the idea that we don't have to be serious about preaching the gospel because God will do it for people in dreams. No, a thousand times no. We rejoice if God does such things, but we never use that as some kind of excuse or reason for us not preaching the gospel. And so the angel comes, address of Joseph. By the way, how often do you think Joseph was addressed this way? Do you see how he addressed him there? Joseph, son of David. I mean, that's got to catch Joseph's attention right away, right? Of course, it's in a dream, but nevertheless, it must have struck him. But son of David, well, I suppose I am. Joseph would have known his own genealogy. But he didn't go around thinking, I'm a descendant of David. You know, I'm royal blood. He didn't go around thinking that way. It should have alerted Joseph that there was something particularly significant about this message. And then he said, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, it seems that Mary had not told Joseph that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. All she told Joseph is, I'm pregnant. And now the angel has to say, perhaps confirm, but I would say more likely say, that which is in Mary is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think we can fault Mary for this. How could she, or how could anybody except God, explain such a thing? Mary, you're pregnant. What happened? What do you expect her to do? Smile sweetly and say, it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, you would have every reason to believe that that would be more blasphemous, right? Than just saying, well, you know, I did something I shouldn't have. And so Mary probably simply offered no explanation and probably simply committed her soul and her honor and her life to God and saying, God, you're going to have to explain this for me because there's no way I can explain it to anybody else. And that's exactly what God did. God did take up her cause and explain it to Joseph in this dream. The angelic word to Joseph was persuasive. And there's no explanation to Joseph, or by the way, even to Mary, how it happened, other than what we have in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. It's a very gentle, it's a very, I don't know, sort of spiritual kind of term there in the ancient Greek language. Now, what I do want to mention to you, and I I don't want to sound crass or crude when I say this, but what we have here is we have absolutely no hint of the kind of gross immorality that was common among the pagan legends of the gods in Jesus' day. In that first century world, the the gods very commonly, you know, the pagan Greek and Roman gods and, and from other nations as well, very commonly in the mythologies of those gods, those gods would come down from their heaven or their abode or wherever they lived, and they would have oftentimes disgraceful sexual couplings with human people. And offspring would come forth from those. So the idea of people born from the gods was not unknown in pagan mythologies, But never was it presented with the purity and with the glory and with the honor that this account gives it. In other words, there is absolutely no hint of a physical coupling between God and Mary. Not at all. Instead, it was the power of the Lord manifested by the Holy Spirit that created this conception within Mary. 
And then he says, finally there in verse 24, excuse me, verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, the name Jesus, which means the salvation of Yahweh. The name Jesus was actually a fairly common name in Jesus' day. Uh, In the writings of Josephus, the ancient historian, he mentions 12 different persons named Jesus in his histories. It's not an unusual name. But even though it was not an unusual name, it's a supremely blessed name, especially in our day. As was said later by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so he said, yes, give this child this name. Now, I wonder how that seemed to Joseph and then later on to Mary. Because it was a very normal name, right? Wouldn't you think that such a special child should have more of a special name? Something really unique, you know, something, wow, that really catches my attention. You know, sort of like an actor or an actress gets a stage name or a screen name, something memorable and catchy. But no, it was a very normal name. Now, I don't want to imply that it didn't have great meaning. No, 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 it's a name that has great meaning. Matter of fact, it means Yahweh is salvation. Let me quote to you again from Charles Spurgeon. He says, God would not have given him a name of secondary value or about which there would be a trace of dishonor. The name is the highest, brightest, and noblest of names. It is the glory of our Lord to be a Savior. Joshua of old was a Savior. Gideon was a Savior. David was a Savior. But the title is given to our Lord above all others because He is a Savior in a sense in which no one else can be. He saves His people from their sins. You know that angelic messenger that came to Joseph in the dream, he briefly and eloquently stated the work of the coming Messiah, Jesus. He was coming as a Savior, and he would come to save his people from their sins. Now, this description of the work of Jesus reminds us that though Jesus meets us in our sin, his purpose is to save us from our sins. And he saves us first from the penalty of sin, and then from the power of sin, and then finally, when we're in heaven, we'll be saved from even the presence of sin. But notice this. He meets us in our sin, but then draws us from our sin, and he saves his people from their sin. The reason why I say that is because every once in a while, you'll you'll see people who perhaps their lifestyle is marked by some notorious or flagrant sin, and they'll say, Jesus loves me just like I am. Was that a true statement or a false statement? I have to say, on the face of it, it's true. Jesus does love them just the way they are. But if they would receive the transforming love of Jesus, it wouldn't keep them just the way they are. It would change them. He would save his people from their sins. And again, I love how it says it there in that verse, in verse 21, his people. You know, if it would have said God's people, I would have, in my own unbelief, I would have thought that it meant just the Jewish people. But no, he says he saves his people from their sin. And he say, well, look, I may not belong to Abraham, not by physical lineage, but listen, I can belong to Jesus by faith, and I can be one of his people saved from sin. Verse 22. 
So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now I want you to notice there in verse 22, this was done that it might be fulfilled. This is the first use of an important phrase that's going to be repeated time and time and time again throughout Matthew. We're going to see it so many times you're going to be tired of it that it might be fulfilled. In other words, Matthew is very concerned to show us Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And what was the prophecy that he fulfilled? Well, it's that famous prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew rightly understood that the supernatural conception of Jesus was prophesied back in Isaiah 7, 14. Now, you should know that there's been some measure of controversy regarding this quote from Isaiah 7.14, primarily because the Hebrew word Alma, translated virgin, can also be translated as young woman. And let's face it, we live in a modern age, right? We don't believe that virgins conceive. We don't believe that God can do such things. We're past all that. You know, we live in a modern age. We've left behind old superstitions. And so if people can say, well, you know, you don't have to believe. It's not necessary to believe that Jesus was conceived by a virgin. It was a virginal conception. People think, well, maybe that will make the gospel sound more logical and sensible to other people. The problem is, that's not what the gospel says. We know that the Isaiah passage speaks of Jesus. Because when it says, the virgin shall be with child, that that conception, and if you go back to Isaiah 7, you can see this, The fact that the virgin would be with child would be a sign to David's entire house. Let me make it to you this way. I've got an amazing sign for you. What's the sign? That a young woman will have a child. Oh, well, that's not much of a sign, is it? But if I tell you it's a sign that a virgin will conceive, well, that is a remarkable sign for all of David's house. Those who deny the virgin birth of Jesus, like to point out again, as I said, that this Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14, translated virgin, that Hebrew word Alma, can also be translated as young woman. And the idea is simply, they say, Isaiah was uh, prophesying that a young woman would give birth and not a virgin. Well, listen, whatever the near fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy was, um, the far fulfillment or the ultimate fulfillment clearly points to a woman miraculously conceiving and giving birth. And this is especially clear because the Old Testament never uses the word in a context other than virgin and because the Septuagint translates Alma in Isaiah 7.14 by the ancient Greek word Parthenos, which simply means virgin. So, it's a very clear fulfillment of this remarkable uh, prophecy. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This title of Jesus refers to his deity, right? God with us. But it also refers to his identification with humanity and his nearness to humanity. God with us. You can emphasize either aspect. And Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God with us. I like what Adam Clark, 
the commentator said. He said, in what sense then is Christ God with us? Jesus is called Emmanuel, or God with us in his incarnation. God with us by the influences of his Holy Spirit, in the Holy Sacrament, in the preaching of his word, in private prayer. And God with us through every action of our life that we begin, continue, and end in his name. He is God with us to comfort, enlighten, protect, and defend us in every time of temptation and trial, in the hour of death, in the day of judgment. God will be with us and in us, and we with and in him to all eternity. That's a glorious thing, that God will be with us. We can very deeply meditate on the meaning of this name, Emmanuel, God with us. You know what it means? It shows how low God bent down to save man. He added the nature of one of his own creatures to his own divine nature, accepting the weaknesses, frailties, and dependency that that creature experiences. In other words, Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, enthroned in heaven, did he ever get tired? Did he ever get hungry? Did he ever get worn out at the end of the day? No, but Jesus on this earth did. And he willingly took those limitations upon himself. By the way, let me remind you that this is the way to understand the incarnation. The incarnation is not subtraction. It's not God and then subtracting something from him so that God is less than God and now becomes Jesus or something like that. That's a completely wrong way. We should understand the incarnation as addition. God in his deity, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, added humanity to his deity. And so he was fully God and fully man. It was not subtraction, it was addition. Secondly, I'd say that God with us shows what a great miracle it was that God could add a human nature to his own and still remain God. Thirdly, it shows us the great compatibility between unfallen human nature and divine nature. The two could be joined together. It shows us that man really is made in the image of God. Do you understand this? There is something essentially compatible between divine being and human being. Now, especially it's true of unfallen human being, right? That there's something essentially compatible about the two, so that Jesus could take humanity and add it to his deity without, and I know it's sounding stupid here, but without exploding or something like that, right? The two could be joined together in one being. And it shows that we can come to him. And that if he has come to us, then we can come to him. Again, I like what Spurgeon said. Then if Jesus Christ be God with us, let us come to God without any question or hesitancy. Whoever may be, whoever you may be, you need no priest or intercessor to introduce you to God, for God has introduced himself to you. You know, um, John Wesley had it right. John Wesley died with these words on his lips. This is what he said. Best of all, God is with us. Oh, that's a good word from John Wesley. All right, now the end of the chapter here, verse 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Now we have to admit, 
Joseph's obedience was remarkable. He did not waver. He instantly understood the validity and the importance of the angelic messenger, and he did what he was told to do in the dream, right? The angel said it, he did it. And you have to understand, Joseph was now, well, let me put it to you this way. Mary was in a place of disgrace and dishonor, right? Joseph said, I'll stand right beside you in that place of disgrace and dishonor. I will take it upon myself as well. And it says there very plainly, he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now the words, did not know her, tell us that Joseph and Mary had normal marital relations, I mean sexual relations, after Jesus' birth. In other words, they didn't have sex before Jesus was born, but sometime after his birth, they came together as husband and wife. Now this emphasizes the fact that Jesus was indeed conceived miraculously. Matthew wants to make it very clear that Jesus was conceived by a virgin and that Joseph had no sexual union with Mary until after she gave birth to Jesus. And this denies a doctrine that many Roman Catholics, and I would say even some Protestants hold this dogma, known as the perpetual virginity of Mary, which they say Mary remained a virgin throughout her entire life, even after she gave birth to Jesus. This is not the plain meaning of the text here. It also contradicts what we read in other passages where Jesus had brothers and sisters. And I would say that this is simply an unbiblical doctrine which did not appear earlier than the 5th century after Jesus. I think it should be placed in the same bin as the dogmas of Mary's immaculate conception, her assumption into heaven, and her present role as mediators for believers. Each one of those is an invention of man, and it's meant to exalt Mary in what I believe to be an unbiblical manner. No, the idea that Mary remained a virgin, not only does it mean that Mary, well, not only does it contradict the word of God, but how could she promise virginity to God and marriage to Joseph at the same time? She should have never married Joseph if that was the case. But best of all, the last phrase of the chapter, and he called his name Jesus. They did what God told them to do. Even though it was a fairly common name, I mean, I can just imagine the conversation between Mary and Joseph. They understood that this child was the Messiah. They understood his destiny. I wonder if they ever discussed, you know, maybe we should give him a, a more noble-sounding name. You know, Clark. Or, you know, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, something strong, something bold, you know, something, wow, you know, boy, it just reeks with strength. I don't know. They didn't. They did what God told them to do. The angel said his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And even though it was a common name, it genuinely had a great meaning. And it would come to be the greatest name, the name above all names. Yahweh is salvation. Well, next week when we get into chapter 2, we're going to see what happened immediately in the aftermath of the birth. But we have more than enough for us to consider here tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that Jesus is given to us, Lord, as Emmanuel, as God with us. We thank you for this surpassing gift of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would really know what it is to have Jesus with us in every moment and every hour of the day. That's our desire, Lord. Thank you for sending a Savior, one who can save us from our sins. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.